Father, would you help us to taste the goodness of Jesus in your word this morning? Would you help us to see Jesus with the eyes of our hearts unveiled and open wide and that we would see his glory in the way that he answers these questions, in the way that he speaks truth about himself, in the way that his words ring true in our hearts even today. Lord, would you take our minds off of anything that might distract us from this? And would you help us, O Lord, to fix our eyes on you? And Father, I'm praying that through what we're going to hear in your word this morning, that you would help our hearts to warm to you and to those who we know or maybe don't yet know who really need you. So Jesus, may our time in your word this morning have a real impact in our hearts that would would translate into lives that would be pleasing to you. And you'll get the glory for this because it's all enabled and empowered by you. We can't do anything apart from you, Lord. And so, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to empower this experience now for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please have a seat. Well, as you know, we are calling this series in Matthew 8 to 10, uh, The Spread of the Kingdom. Because in these three chapters in Matthew, we watch as, as the ministry of Jesus expands and the message of the kingdom reaches out to more and more people. And as this happens, we get to watch more and more people react or respond to Jesus. And as that happens, we get the opportunity to learn a whole lot more about Jesus and his message. We can learn a lot about someone by how other people react to them, by how other people respond to them. And we gain a lot of insight into the mission of Jesus as we watch his message being received and responded to by others. So we saw this two weeks ago as we saw two men, the scribe and the son of, 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 a, of a father who had either just died or was near to death. And today's passage shows us two more accounts of people responding to Jesus. And just like with the prior reaction section, like we saw two weeks ago, this section of Matthew allows us to, to glimpse the mission and the purpose of Jesus in, in some really important ways, in some ways that, that are really have a lot to say to us today. So without a whole lot of further ado, we're going to dive right in as we consider uh, these two uh, interactions that Jesus has with people who are responding and reacting to his message. The first is in verses 9 to 13. Uh, we're looking at this under the heading of Jesus the doctor. That's going to make sense to you, hopefully, in a few minutes. And our first step here is the call. This is in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. I'm going to stop right there for now. We, uh, we should understand a few things about what's going on in this first. Capernaum, which is where Jesus was at this point, where he had relocated, was a major hub in Galilee, the north of the land of Israel. And this was a place where taxes were collected as people passed through there. There were roads, and then, of course, there's the Sea of Galilee. Taxes were paid to King Herod, and King Herod was a Roman puppet, so he was had been put there by the Romans and kind of was a, a, a local uh, official for the Romans, more or less. And, and what he did was he hired local people to, hi, to, to raise taxes for him. And we know some of the things that he did with those taxes, like build incredible works like Temple Mount and so on. The whole tax system, though, and, and man, I, I, I did a bit of a deep dive in my study this week on this, and I won't bore you with all the details, but it, it's, just, it's fascinating how the tax system of, of the first century worked. If you think we've got it bad today, 
Uh, if you think, you know, when when the time comes once a year for us to pay taxes, if you think that's rough, uh, man, it's we are pretty good compared to what they had to live with in the first century. But basically, there there were many levels to the tax system, and each guy in in the at the le, in the different levels was trying to make a profit. Each guy had to pay the guy above him, and so he tried to take a cut so that he could pad his own pockets. And so Matthew is one of the guys very likely at the bottom of the tax system. So he's one of the one of the guys he's working for a higher up, and that higher up's trying to make a profit. So Matthew has to get a lot of tax out of people. But Matthew has the authority to take as much money as he wants from people. There were no standard tax rates that were that everybody had to abide by. Tax collectors could just say, ah, oh, I'm going to tax the wheels on your cart today. And I'm going to charge you this much for each wheel on your cart. And I'm going to actually tax you by the number of uh, tails on your donkey. And, and they, they literally could make that kind of stuff up. And uh, they... They were making a big profit, robbing their countrymen, and everybody knew it was happening. Everybody knew this. That's why people hated the tax collectors, because they were they're basically professional thieves. Not only were they, were they doing this, but they were working for the oppressors, right? King Herod, who was a Roman puppet. I mean, the Jews didn't like the Romans very much. They were, they were the oppressors. And the tax collectors were the guys who worked for the oppressors. So just a little bit of a connection point. Think If you think of World War II, uh, the, the countries that were occupied by the Nazis, the, the local people who worked for the Nazis, think of how loved or rather not loved they were by their fellow countrymen. It's a little bit what the tax collectors were like. They were the bad guys. We've got to understand this. And it's interesting, we see this in the way that tax collectors and sinners is a phrase that's just linked together all the time in the Gospels. Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were like, if you were to think of a, a terrible, sinful person, the first thing that comes to mind, tax collector. So Jesus walks past this point where there's a tax collector sitting in a booth, and a man called Matthew is sitting there, and Jesus does not say... You scoundrel. Jesus does not say, don't you feel any shame working for the Romans? Jesus does not say even this. Hey, what are the chances that you might be interested in potentially following me sometime? Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says two words. I I would have loved to be there and just seen this happen. Just walks up to this guy, the worst of the worst, and says two words. Follow me. Notice the the form of these words here. Not a question, but a command. Follow me. Remember how this is so opposite of what the rabbis did? Remember how the rabbis, they'd wait for people to follow them? Rabbis never did this. Rabbis never said to other people, you follow me. Jesus says, follow me. And we need to remember that at this point in history, for Matthew, this didn't mean following Jesus' teaching or following Jesus' example, this meant literally following Jesus. Now, how could Jesus just say this to him? How could he just say this? It's, it's interesting to consider that Matthew and Jesus were both in Capernaum for a time, and there's a chance that Matthew knew about Jesus. This may not have been the first time he heard about him, but What's interesting also is that Matthew and none of the other Gospels tell us anything about their relationship before this point. The Gospels want to highlight how abrupt this is. Matthew's just going about his day, minding his own business, robbing his countrymen, collecting taxes for the foreign oppressors like he did every day. And a man named Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew Verse 9 and the remainder of it said, don't tell me what to do. I'm in charge of my own life. No. What did he do? He rose and he followed him. Matthew, his other name is Levi. Many Jewish people had multiple names. It's interesting that traditionally Matthew is, is, is attributed as being the author of this book. And it's interesting that Uh, it kind of makes sense the way that he writes this. He doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. He doesn't 
say in a lot of flashy words, then Matthew considered all of his options, you know, like he just writes what happens. Uh, Luke, in Luke's version, in Luke 5.28, says that leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Luke draws attention to the fact that Matthew had to leave everything. A lucrative job. I mean, he was making money hand over fist probably, or at least he could. A stable job, working for the government. And Luke draws attention that, that Matthew left everything to follow. But Matthew just says he rose and followed. But we know this means leaving a stable job, a source of income, his job very likely would have been snatched up by some other person who's willing to, to do that kind of work. No turning back. But for Matthew, Jesus called, and so he answered. It's interesting, as we think about the call and the cost of discipleship, just like with the four fishermen back in chapter 4, just like with the scribe and the son back in chapter 8, we should notice here, Jesus doesn't negotiate with people. Jesus doesn't beg. Jesus doesn't barter. Jesus doesn't butter up to people. Jesus gives commands, and faithful disciples obey and follow, whatever the cost might be. We also shouldn't miss what a mercy this is. Matthew was an outcast. Matthew is the kind of guy that as he walked through town, people would have stepped out of their way to avoid him. Matthew probably had very little friends other than fellow tax collectors and sinners. What other rabbi would want Matthew to be one of his followers? What other religious leader would give Matthew a chance like this? Just think about, think about, the opportunity that's opening for Matthew in this moment. I mean, especially if, as, as tradition tells us, and we've got good reasons to see that he's the author of this gospel, or at least someone a lot like him, right? It's interesting, Matthew's gospel nowhere says it was written by Matthew, but from the earliest dates, that's what Christians have said, and it, it makes a lot of sense. 2,000 years later, how many other books by first century tax collectors are we reading? Right? You know any other tax collectors from, from Galilee in the first century that you're reading their books week by week? I mean, Matthew could have said no to Jesus and gone back to just living his comfy little scoundrelly scumbag life and he would have died and been forgotten about. But Matthew chooses to answer the call of Jesus and here we are, still talking about him, studying his book. He left a legacy on human history that so few people have. And don't miss the greatest gift here. Don't miss the greatest gift is not just getting to write a book. It's getting to follow Jesus. Remember what we, what we looked at again a couple weeks ago. Jesus, the most priceless treasure in the world. Jesus. And Jesus invites Matthew, actually commands him to follow him. So it's interesting. Is, is this call to Matthew... Is it a call to costly discipleship? Or is it an act of kindness and mercy that Matthew could never deserve? Is it a call to costly discipleship or an or a act of kindness and mercy? What's the answer? The answer is yes. We see here that the, the hard call to leave everything for Jesus is mercy. It is a gift. It is a grace. So that's the call. Next, we see in verse 10, the feast. Once again, and this is one of the clues that, yeah, this was written by Matthew because he's not interested in drawing a lot of attention to himself. What does verse 10 say? And as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Okay. Once again, Luke tells us more of what was going on. Luke 5.29, Levi, so Matthew's other name, made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. That's Luke 5.29. So what do we see, what do we learn from there? That he had a big house, and he had enough money to throw a huge feast. So this guy's, this guy's doing really well. 
And Matthew, though, in Matthew's version, he doesn't, he doesn't draw that attention to himself. He's not humble bragging. Look at everything I left to follow Jesus. You know, he doesn't do that. He just says, what happened? Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, look, look at this. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What do disciples of Jesus do? They invite other people to get to know Jesus. That's what disciples do. This is one of the first things Matthew did. He follows Jesus, and at some point along the way, he went and got a big meal going and told a bunch of his friends to come and get to know Jesus too. And there's Jesus enjoying a meal with what probably included the most despised and hated group of people in Israel at that, at, at that time. He's with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners, I mean, they're talking about people who that's what characterizes their life, very likely a group that included prostitutes, that kind of people. Now, here's some things we need to understand about this feast. For the Jewish people of this day, Sharing a meal together wasn't something you just did with just anybody. Sharing a meal was a real act of fellowship. It was an act of friendship, of welcoming. So that's why Jewish people didn't eat meals with Gentiles. And good Jewish people certainly did not eat meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. You just didn't do that. Because a meal was a way of saying, we're friends. Right? Eating together was a was a was a really close thing. <laughs> it, it makes me wonder how the other disciples of Jesus felt. I mean, yeah, they're fishermen, but probably good, upright Jewish guys. And they're saying, hey, uh, pass the bread to a prostitute, maybe. Um, could I have some more wine to a tax collector that they maybe never would have talked to before? It's very interesting to just imagine what that meal would have been like. I'm sure Jesus was quite comfortable. We're going to see in a moment, these are the people Jesus came for. And we need to understand that by eating with them, Jesus is making a very, very, very strong statement. Jesus is saying that tax collectors and sinners are not beyond the reach of his grace. Tax collectors and sinners are welcomed to come and receive mercy and to come and be a part of the people of God. Now, this picture gets even clearer when we think about some of the things we've heard Jesus say. Remember how we've heard before about this image of of feasting or banqueting in the Gospel of Matthew and how it's a picture of the kingdom of God? Matthew 8.11, many will come from east and west and will recline at table, right? which is what Jesus is doing there with these guys. Will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this, we, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago. There's this picture in the Old Testament of the kingdom of God being like this rich feast. And Jesus has used that language. And actually, he goes on to use it several more times, at least four times in Matthew's gospel. Jesus compares the kingdom to a feast. So that's one thing to remember. Here's the second thing to remember. Jesus has repeatedly said, both Jesus and John the Baptist, that the kingdom is not just in the future. The kingdom of God is what? What was his message? At hand. So put put these two things together. The kingdom is a feast, and the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus is having a feast with these people. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the picture that he's giving? He's giving a picture of the kingdom. And what that means is that tax collectors and sinners get to be a part of the kingdom. That's that's what he's showing here. Tax collectors and sinners get to be a part of the kingdom of God. A deliberate picture of the kingdom is what Jesus is giving here. Uh, My professor from my class on Matthew that I took back in the spring, in our class notes, he wrote this. It seems likely that both Jesus and his opponents saw in his table fellowship a deliberate anticipation of the final kingdom. 
So don't miss the statement that Jesus is making. He's not only eating with people that he probably shouldn't be eating with. He's making a, he's acting out that these people are invited to come and be a part of the kingdom of God. And that's a huge deal. The, the, no wonder the Pharisees and the tax collectors had a hard, or sorry, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the priests had a hard time with this because according to the priests and the Pharisees, those people Jesus was eating with, they had no relationship with God because they had broken the law. Some of them made a job out of breaking the law. That was their career was to break the law. And, and the law was how you had a relationship with God in that covenant. You followed the law. You broke the law, you'd broken the covenant. No relationship with God. So what's Jesus saying here as he acts out that these people, tax collectors and sinners, they actually get to have a relationship with God. They get to be a part of the kingdom. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Something new has come. The way that we relate to God is not simply by following the law. It's by coming to God through Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the statement Jesus is making here. The way that you get to be a part of the kingdom of God is not by following the law perfectly, but by coming and having a relationship with Jesus. I mean, no wonder people struggle with this. No wonder Jesus had to say, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Sure seemed like it. Sure seemed like as he eats with these people, what he's saying is, you know what? It doesn't matter that they didn't fulfill the law or that they didn't even keep the law. The law doesn't matter. I'm abolishing it. It probably looked that way. But remember, Jesus isn't abolishing it. He's fulfilling it. And this is part of what it looks like to fulfill the law and the prophets. It looks like welcoming sinners like tax collectors and prostitutes, to come and be a part of the kingdom, not because they lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law perfectly, but simply because they've come through Jesus. Through Jesus, they can find a forgiveness and a mercy that they could not have found before. Jesus is really changing everything. We're going to hear at the end of this passage about new wine and new wineskins. This is what it looks like. The old wine and the old wineskins of just keeping the law of Moses and that's it. That, that, that time period is finished. The arrival of Jesus in the kingdom of God, what makes us a part of the people of God is our relationship with Jesus. Something, again, we've seen multiple times in Matthew's gospel. So all of this kind of makes sense to us. We kind of know this. But to the people of that day, this would have been very strange, very confusing. Especially to the religious leaders whose job was to make sure that people obeyed the law. So they come in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher, why does your teacher, (laughs) almost see their fingers, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's not supposed to do that. It's not actually what it says, but that's kind of what they mean. Notice that they went to the disciples, not to Jesus. People do this all the time, still today, right? You don't go to the, talk to the person you should talk to. You find kind of some softer ears and you complain to them. And, and even though this seems like a question, this is a criticism, What in the world is Jesus doing? You're not supposed to eat with those people. Jesus is breaking the rules. Come on. We kind of know the Pharisees as being the bad guys, right? But you got to think, if you were a Jew living in the first century, Pharisees were the good guys. Just think about this. What had the problem of God's people been for years and years and years and years? It was breaking the law and worshiping other gods. That's why they went into exile. That's why they were punished. That's why the prophets came to them again and again. God's people ignored the law and worshipped other gods. Finally, after coming back from exile, a group of guys said, ah, this this changes. We're not going to do this. We're not going to keep making the same mistakes. We are going to keep the law. In fact, we're going to make up new laws to keep us from ever keeping the law. Those are the Pharisees. And it's not hard to see that This probably seemed like a good idea at the time. I mean, just think, compare the Pharisees 
to some of those wicked kings of, of the people of Israel, like Jeroboam or Manasseh, who burned his sons in the fire to other gods. I mean, who would you rather be friends with? You see how if we step into the, the, the time of the first century, it's not hard to see that the Pharisees seem like pretty good guys, like the good guys. And you'd think Jesus and them would get along. And here's Jesus, who's supposed to be this good guy, eating a meal with a bunch of lawbreakers. It's not hard to see how the Pharisees would have been worked up about this. What in the world is going on? And now we come to the response, verses 12 to 13. Because here Jesus turns the tables on them. Somehow he finds out about the question. Again, I just, I'd love to see this. The disciples, uh, uh, Jesus, um, those Pharisees had a, had a question. They're kind of wondering uh, what in the world we're doing right now. And we're kind of wondering the same thing. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, we, don't, we don't know how their own thinking had developed. But Jesus turns the tables and Jesus shows that despite the appearances, the Pharisees were the guys who weren't getting it. The Pharisees were the guys who had totally missed the heart and the character of God. And, and we should see here the response, verses 12 to 13, comes in three parts. First part, verse 12, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, but those who are sick. So in other words, Jesus is a doctor. And those tax collectors and the sinners are the sick people. And so the Pharisees' question makes no sense. Would you go to a doctor and say, what are you doing spending time with all those sick people? Uh, it's kind of his job. It's what doctors do. They spend time with sick people and help them get better. Do you see, do you see what Jesus is saying here? There's just so much packed into here. Jesus is acknowledging that those tax collectors and sinners are not okay. They're sinners. They got a big problem. What they've done is not cool. They can't stay that way. It's not okay to be a tax collector and a sinner. And that's exactly why Jesus is spending time with them. Because he's the doctor. And they need to get well. And this is what he came for. They have cancer. He's the surgeon. And he's going to help them. Once again, we also see here a connection point, like we've seen multiple times, between sin and sickness. We've seen this again and again throughout Matthew, and here it kind of comes to the surface. Jesus is a doctor, and primarily that is not about him healing people's bodies. It's about healing their souls. That's what he's here to do with these people. His real work as a doctor is to call these sinners to repentance. So that's the first part of Jesus' response. They're sick. I'm a doctor. That's what doctors do. They spend time with sick people to help them get better. The second part, verse 13, Jesus says this. He turns up the temperature here. <laughs> he, he, J- Jesus turns up the temperature rather quickly. We're going to see this again and again. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay, so go and learn. That's a phrase that the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes would use if someone needed to do their homework with a part of the Bible, if they, if they weren't getting it. They'd say, go and learn what this means. Like, look up this verse and do your homework, man. You, you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus is telling these Pharisees who essentially studied the Bible for their career that they didn't even understand what it means. And there's all, in, the, in your study guide this week, there's a whole bunch of points where, where this happens, where Jesus helps, where Jesus shows us that, that the Pharisees studied the Bible and completely misunderstood it and so needed to go study it again. Uh, that's important. Some people look at this and they go, oh, so see, studying the Bible doesn't really matter. No, no, that's, that's not Jesus' point. Where does Jesus point these guys? Back to the scriptures. And he says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In Hebrew, I desire chesed, covenant love, steadfast, faithful covenant love, which is directed to God and then is expressed in our relationships with each other. Here's what's so interesting. 
Hosea was written to the people before the exile, the idol worshipers, the people who were burning their kids in the fire to other gods. But Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you have the same problem. You look clean, they look dirty, but your hearts are the identical. Your hearts have the identical problem. See, these people back before the exile thought they could burn incense to the other gods and 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 go worship Baal here and there, and then every once in a while trounce into this temple and offer their burnt offering to God like the law said, and that God would be happy with them for their performance. And Hosea 6 is basically saying, I want your heart to be faithful to me in covenant love. I want that more than your sacrifice. And Jesus is saying the Pharisees have the exact same problem. They're trying to impress God with their behavior. Their heart is so far away. And how can he tell? How can you tell if someone's heart is far away from God? How they treat other people, right? First John, how can you say that you love God if you don't love the person who's made in God's image? Maybe that's, that might be in James. Look it up. Bible study assignment for you. But love for God is expressed in love for people who are made in God's image. And Jesus is saying that the way these Pharisees were so about keeping themselves clean, oh, don't touch me, dirty tax collector. Don't touch me, dirty prostitute. That behavior showed that their hearts were far from God. And God wasn't interested in all their performance. He wanted mercy. He wanted steadfast love. Third part of Jesus' response, end of verse 13. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Once again, this shows us Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't come for righteous people because there are none. Jesus came for sinners. That's his mission, is to call sinners. And so he needs to spend time with them. That, once again, shows us just how ridiculous the Pharisees' question really was. And it shows us that as long as the Pharisees thought they were righteous, they'd always be on the outside of Jesus' kingdom. Always on the outside of Jesus' mission. If you think you're fine without Jesus, you'll stay without Jesus. You won't be fine, but you can't, you can't benefit from Jesus without recognizing that you're a sick person and he's a doctor. Jesus came to call people who knew they were sinners. So there's a lot of really important truths there, and we're going to come back to them in just a few minutes. But our passage goes on to have, show a second encounter. It's not, it's not as long, but it's just as important. A second encounter that Jesus has with a different group of people who weren't sure they liked what he was doing. And we're going to see here, we're going to learn a little bit more about the kingdom and the mission of Jesus in verses 14 to 17. Now here, Jesus gets a question from another group of people. This time, it's not the Pharisees, it's the disciples of John. What's John the Baptist? Now what's interesting is this question also has to do with food and eating. Isn't it interesting? We think Jesus, the hard call of discipleship, so extreme, and yet Jesus is getting in trouble for being too lacks on the rules for, for, for not being strict enough. They, they thought he was a liberal. Well, I mean, maybe not in the way we, we think of that word, but that's, that's kind of the idea here. They think Jesus is being too loose with his standards because the Pharisees were concerned who Jesus was eating with. The disciples of John are concerned that Jesus is eating so much, period, because they fasted a lot. Now, it's interesting, in, in, in the law of Moses, the Jewish people only had to fast one day out of the year. But, of course, the Pharisees, trying to be really good, fasted all the time. And John the Baptist did the same thing. You might fast, too, if all you had to eat was locusts and honey. But the disciples of John the Baptist took on this a, 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 a lifestyle that included fasting a lot, and, and they sort of thought, well, if the Messiah shows up, he's kind of going to do what we do, right? They, they truly were Baptists, right? They assumed the way they did things was the right way of doing things, and anyone who did something different than them was, was wrong. So fasting was connected to prayer. Fasting was a way of, of, of showing total devotion to God. 
And here comes who they think is the Messiah, because that's what John the Baptist said. And every time they see him, he seems to be, him and his disciples seem to be having a good time and eating together. So they ask a question. Don't miss, though, that this is, this is a bit more of an honest question. And we can see that, that they go right to Jesus. So they're not afraid to go right to Jesus. And they ask him what's going on. Why do we fast and you don't fast? Why do we and the Pharisees fast? And so then in verse 15, Jesus gives the answer. Except uh, it's actually not quite an answer. Notice that what Jesus does is what he does a lot of times is he gives an answer by asking a question. Jesus is interested in helping people think. That's what's going on. If someone asks you a question, you ask them a question, you're helping them think. You're training them to think. You're showing respect for them. And Jesus asked them a question. Verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, what does that have to do with anything? Actually, it has everything to do with everything. Jesus' disciples didn't fast because their walk with Jesus, what's the closest thing you can compare it to? Guests at a wedding. Guests at a wedding don't fast. Unless it's a, you know, a really cheap wedding of Bible college students or something. But, but especially in the first century, weddings lasted for days. And, and it was a big deal. It was a big celebration. People ate and ate and drank and drank. And Jesus is saying that his disciples following him, that's, that's, that's their experience. Which means that Jesus is what? Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. Once again, this is this wonderful Old Testament picture. And there's a bunch of, of in your study guide, a bunch of the references that show us where this picture comes from. This is language that John the Baptist picked up on in John chapter 3. John, John said Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the long-awaited bridegroom who had come to marry his people, which was Old Testament language that God was going to draw his people back to himself, never to be broken apart again. Jesus is the bridegroom. And what happens when the bridegroom shows up? You have a wedding party. And this literally meant they ate feasts together. They really celebrated, like in real concrete ways. It wouldn't make sense for them to fast because Jesus is there. That's what they had just been doing with the tax collectors at Matthew's house, right? Feasting was appropriate because the most wonderful person in the world was there. Now it's interesting, the rest of verse 15, Jesus says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. So the final kingdom isn't, isn't here quite yet. There's this already but not yet thing. The time has come where the bridegroom is going to be taken away. It's not hard to imagine Jesus' disciples fasting after he was crucified. I, I, don't, I would have eaten anything for a while. And actually, in the book of Acts, after Jesus went to heaven, we see more than once the disciples fasting. So Jesus assumes that fasting, which was connected to prayer, would be a regular part of his disciples' life after he was taken away from them. Again, in your study guide, it's going to ask you, what part does, what, does fasting play a part in your life? You should consider that. Jesus assumes it's going to be a part of our life. But not now, not then, because the, the friend of the bridegroom, or sorry, the bridegroom is there. The joyful age of the Messiah has dawned, and he's giving them a picture of the new kingdom as they feast together. Then in verses 16 and 17, this is our, our, our third part here in Jesus the bridegroom, Jesus gives two different illustrations that, that help us see just, just how new this ministry of Jesus was that, they, that he had come to bring. The first is an illustration about putting a new cloth patch on the old clothes. Second is about putting new wine into old wineskins. And the point of both of these is the same. And here's how these two illustrations about the cloth patch and the wineskins, they really sum up this whole passage. Jesus had not come to just patch up the old way of doing things. Jesus had not come to just give them a refill of the same old, same old. 
That, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the imagery here. Jesus had come to give them something completely new, completely different. Not completely new in the sense that it was what God had promised, but Jesus had come to bring not just a patched up old thing, but whole new clothes, whole new wine, whole new wineskins. A new age, a new era had dawned with the arrival of Jesus, and, and they could not just keep doing things the same old, same old way that they always had been. So the Pharisees needed to get this, and the disciples of John needed to get this. Something new was there, and they needed to get with the program. If they didn't, they would be left in the dust forever. Their old wineskins would burst. Their cloth patch would tear away. And if they didn't get with Jesus, they were going to lose everything. So, as we think about what this whole passage tells us, we can't miss that this passage begs our response. It's saying, it's, it's asking us, okay, how are you going to respond? It's, it's interesting. Once again, we don't see how either the Pharisees or the disciples of John responded to Jesus. Right? We just hear what Jesus said. And, and that leads me to say that, that Matthew's asking us to consider, okay, what would I say to that? What, what would I say to that? How would I respond to that? Who is Jesus? How would I respond to his mission and his person? So let's, let's, let's consider our response in, in a couple of important ways. If Jesus is the doctor, what does that make you? If Jesus is the bridegroom, what does that make you? Let's start with the first one. If Jesus is the doctor, that makes you a sick person, one of his patients. A sick person who needs a doctor. Do you see yourself in this way? Do you know how badly you need Jesus? I wonder if you or I were at Matthew's house at that feast with all those terrible people, if we would have felt uncomfortable. Ugh, I don't belong here. These people are dirty, gross, different. Or, I wonder if we would have thought, these are my people. I'm with a bunch of broken sinners who, who need a doctor. And here we are. Because regardless of how we look on the outside, we know that we need Jesus just as bad as that tax collector, just as bad as that prostitute. As I thought about this this week, it made me think about the church again and, and churches like ours and even our church. It's been on my mind because of some conversations I've had recently, but just how easily churches like ours become places where people come to act like they have it all together. It's so interesting. We come supposedly for the sake of Jesus, but how easy it is for us to come and do our best to convince everybody else that we actually don't really need Jesus all that much because really we're fine. Just this week, as I was thinking about this, I, I heard a quote by Tim Keller, and I love it. He said that the church or a church should feel more like a waiting room for a doctor's office than a waiting room for a job interview. See, have you ever been in a waiting room for a job interview? You know, everyone's there looking their best, trying their best to look super competent and like they've got it all together and everything's fine and there's a little bit of competition running beneath the surface because we all really want the same job and I'm so much better than you. You ever been in a waiting room for a doctor? Hey, what are you in for? What do you need the doctor for? I'm sick. What are you sick with? bunch of needy people who know they're needy and they're there to get well. And I just love that. I just love that as a picture of, of what a church should be like, a bunch of needy people needing help together. Now, there is a danger in, 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 in taking this picture too far because what we don't want to give the impression of is that the church is a group of people who never, ever grow and who always stay stuck in the same sin patterns that they always were stuck in from the very beginning. Okay, that, if Jesus is a good doctor, then you should be getting better and better the more you spend time with him. 
but you never stop coming to him because you never stop needing him. Jesus is like one of those doctors. It's like we've got this condition where we have to keep up our regular visits with the doctor. And as we do that, we get better. And there I'm talking specifically about we gain victory over sin in our lives and we look more and more like Jesus. But we know that if we were to stop meeting with that doctor, if we were to stop taking his medicine, if we were to neglect our visits with him, we would just go right back to where we were before. So we need the doctor, and we keep coming to the doctor because we need him. And, and as we look at people who have not been seeing the doctor as long as us, we, we look at them and we realize we're basically the same, and that we both need Jesus the same. We all need the doctor. Our church should be a welcome place for people who know that they're not okay. That's what I'm trying to say here. Our church should be a welcome place for people who know that they're not okay. But remember, we're not just patients of the doctor. We're also guests of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom has been taken away for us, and we might mourn, and yes, we might fast, but we know he's coming back. And guess what? We're more than just patients, or sorry, we're more than just guests. We're actually the bride. So so the church should also feel like... uh, like we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the life of a woman who is very soon to be married and is really eagerly waiting to see her fiancé pull up onto her driveway and come get her and take her to be his wife. That's, that's, that's what we should feel like because that, that's what we are. We know that Jesus gave his life for us when he took our place on the cross to make us pure and holy and beautiful and he's coming back for us like he promised. So we wait, and we wait with joy. And every time that we gather together to celebrate a meal together, we get to act out in a small way the joy of the coming kingdom. In the life that we share together, we get to celebrate what's coming for us in the final kingdom. Now, I want to get really practical here. As we end, I'm going to put, I want to put these two ideas together, the doctor and the bridegroom, us as patients, us as wedding guests, and I want to put them together in a really, really practical way for us. And what I'm doing here is I'm drawing an example for us from this passage. I think probably the best example for us from this passage of how we can put these things into practice comes from Matthew, who was a sick person who had been called by the doctor. And what's the first thing he did? He gathered together fellow sick people to come and celebrate a feast together in anticipation of the final feast. I think one of the best ways that we could put this passage into practice is to do the same. So I'm a very, very specific application here. I want to encourage you to put this passage into practice by very deliberately sharing a meal with someone that you know who needs Jesus. Can you imagine what a difference it would make in our town if in the next week or two, every family in this church invited their neighbors or someone else that they knew over for a meal? Inviting fellow sick people to the doctor. And before the meal, they prayed in Jesus' name, and they got to know those people by asking good questions and showing them at the same time that they knew Jesus and were genuinely interested in those other people. Throughout history, and particularly in our present time, hospitality, sharing meals together, has been one of the key ways, one of the most, one of the most effective ways that God's people have been able to introduce other people to the doctor and the bridegroom. Maybe you can't cook. Well, uh, you can open a can of Campbell's Chunky Soup and heat it up on the stove, Maybe your house is a disaster. Well, you could help it be not a disaster. (laughs) Or you could go to a restaurant. You could go to Tim Hortons. You start somewhere. But what I'm trying to help us see here is that there's some really practical ways that we can put this into practice as we invite people that we know who need Jesus to come and get to know Jesus 
by sharing a meal together, a little picture of the kingdom. By the way, this this whole kind of heart that I'm sharing here, we actually structure our whole calendar as a church to give you time to do this kind of thing. You know, this is why we only do our men's and our ladies' Bible studies once a month and, and why we do them on a Sunday. We really want... We don't want you to be at the church every night of of your week doing something with other Christians. We want you to have space in your schedule to get to know your neighbors, to get to know people who need to know Jesus, to be able to cook them a can of Campbell's Chunky Soup and ask them about their life and start to introduce them to the doctor and the bridegroom. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who stuck together in their holy huddles and never got close to people who looked dirty and different. That can't be us. That can't be us. We need to be like Matthew. Come, get to know Jesus with me. We're going to sing here in a moment about the great work of Christ who came to save us. And I just want want you to think, as we sing this song, there are people in this town who will never find out about the great work that Jesus has done unless we tell them. And maybe it will be over a bowl of soup at your kitchen table that you'll have the chance to invite someone else to come and behold the wondrous mystery. Would you be open to that? No doubt there are other ways to apply this passage, but would you be open to following Matthew's example? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the doctor who came to make sick people well. And we thank you that your great act of soul medicine was sacrificing yourself in our place on the cross, bearing all the judgment of the Father against our sin and giving us a righteousness through your perfect life that we can be clothed in and then giving us your Holy Spirit to help us actually start to live and become who we already are. Jesus, in your life and death and resurrection and your coming, this is a wonderful mystery. Lord, would you give us a heart to invite others to come and behold? Maybe in some really simple, practical ways. Lord, make us a church of people who love to invite other people to come behold the wondrous mystery. Help us, O Holy Spirit, to apply your word. Amen.